baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us once again on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. With emotions running high after the racial hatred and violence on display in Charlottesville, Virginia last weekend, fears about two scheduled rallies by right-wing groups in the Bay Area next weekend have some government officials urging the permit of at least one of those events be rescinded. The largest event is a rally by the group Patriot Prayer. It's set for next Saturday in San Francisco's Chrissy Field, which is actually the property not of San Francisco, but of the National Park Service. Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi and Senator Dianne Feinstein have asked the Park Service to review the permit in light of Charlottesville, and most recently news that the armed group Oath Keepers is offering to provide security for Patriot Prayer as Mayor Lee re-upping his call to the feds that that event on their property be denied. But how would this square with the constitutional guarantee of free speech and lawful permitted assembly? In these unsettled times, it seems appropriate that every citizen have a very clear working knowledge of our rights and our responsibilities as set out by the First Amendment in the Constitution. For that, I am very happy to have back on the program a legal expert who helped us understand the electoral college process following the presidential election of Donald Trump. Matthew Coles is a professor of constitutional law at UC Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco. He is also the former deputy legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union. He was the ACLU's director of their Center for Equality, which focuses on voting, racial justice, immigration, and disability rights. Professor Coles, thank you for returning to KCBS In-Depth. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let's start with the basics. Free speech, hate speech. What is protected? Virtually any kind of speech is protected by the First Amendment. There are a couple of exceptions. Um, Threats, intimidation, uh, obscenity. Uh, But basically, all speech is protected by the First Amendment. Can you give an example of when you, when you say threats or you say, so it, it, we're, we're watching rallies and we're saying, uh, we're seeing somebody yell at the other side, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to, um, we're going to wipe you off the face of the earth. I mean, there's rhetoric and then there are threats. It seems very cut and dried. All speech is protected. But then we get into these gray areas of what is incitement. Does something have to actually happen? Some injury? So what would be a, an example? Well, good. you know, there's a Supreme Court case that's a good example of the difference between hate speech, which I think is protected, and threats and intimidation, which are not. Um, uh, it comes from Virginia. It's two separate cross burnings. And in one instance, it's a Klan rally with a cross burning in an open field, but, but in an open field off the road. And, uh, and near the same time, uh, a couple of people burning a cross on their neighbor's lawn. And what the Supreme Court said was the first burning across at a Klan rally was protected speech. 
burning a cross on somebody, on a particular person's lawn was a threat and a pretty clear threat, and you could be prosecuted for that. So, no, you don't actually have to wait for something violent to happen uh, for, for uh, something of expression to be. Uh, but uh, you can't um, uh, move simply against speech. What is considered hate speech? I think hate speech is, is you know, it, 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 it's any kind of speech that expresses hatred, contempt for another group of people. But I think hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. It's threats or intimidation that are not protected by the First Amendment. As we look at whether or not um, the groups that want to come to the Bay Area next weekend, uh, Patriot Prayer has received, as I understand it, at least a verbal okay from the Parks Department to be at Chrissy Field on Saturday, and another organization against Americans Against Marxism, I'm forgetting the exact name of the group, uh, in Berkeley on Sunday. And we've seen... Uh, scenarios like this in Berkeley before last spring, in, in which um, two groups came together and it was it was violent. At what point is um, it okay or legal for a city, an entity of any kind, to deny a permit to assemble or to deny a permit to have a rally? Well, let, let me as, let me as a start say, um, you know, violence or even other kinds of law-breaking are not protected by the First Amendment, right? So, so people often think that civil disobedience is protected by the First Amendment. It's not. Civil disobedience isn't, and obviously violence against another human being is not protected by the First Amendment. The question becomes, I guess, when you think violence may result at an event, does that give you a basis to ban the speech? And, and the basic rule works like this. Um, uh, the... the The duty of the government, the first duty of the government, um, is to try and make sure that neither the speaker nor the audience reacts with violence. And, you know, there there are lots of really basic things that that jurisdictions that are experienced with dealing with, with, you know, violent uh, speech on which people have violently different opinions – are used to doing. You don't put the two groups together in one place. You don't let them uh, protest together. And for the, for the government to say, uh, protesters and counter-protesters, you can't be in the same space. You have to be here in different spaces, sometimes even at different times. It's perfectly legitimate for the government to do that. It would have been perfectly legitimate for the government to have said in Virginia, uh, you can come and engage in a free speech event, but you're not allowed to be armed. You're not allowed to bring clubs. You're not allowed to bring baseball bats or guns or knives or anything like that. I think that's a perfectly legitimate restriction. Of course, since it's Virginia and an open carry state, it might have been difficult to do that or there might have been political reasons for not doing that. But it's it's perfectly legitimate for the government to take reasonable steps to make sure that violence doesn't result. And if you're truly in a situation, whether because of geography or because of numbers, um, where you can't prevent violence and, and it's clear that someone's trying to incite violence and that it's imminent, then you can stop the event from happening. You, did, you didn't need to wait until there's actual violence. If there's clear incitement toward violence and it appears to be imminent, you can intervene and stop the event. But, but it, it just seems to me in Virginia, the police were woefully unprepared and weren't taking very basic steps that one takes to prevent a demonstration either because of the people engaged in it or the reacting the people who are reacting to it to engage in violence.
I want to go back to what you mentioned about um, taking reasonable steps in terms of um, weapons and what laws trump what laws in, in you know, local jurisdiction or state jurisdiction. And, but before we do that, um, certainly if it looks like violence is imminent, um, to, the, the government has the right to step in, as you said. But what about the anticip- just the anticipation of violence? Um, uh, some of the, uh, our local legislators who are concerned about violence at such a rally here, having seen what happened in Charlottesville, and, you know, the incitement of um, comments by the president and other elected officials, they're saying, you know, we fear violence, therefore, let's not allow or revoke this permit. Is the fear of violence enough to limit free speech? Absolutely not. And, and you know, we see this again and again and again. You know, government tried to shut down Vietnam War protests, both in schools and in the streets, because they feared violence. You know, if, if, if even a reasonable fear of violence were legitimate, then all of the no blood for oil demonstrations back at the time of the Gulf War would have been shut down uh, by local governments almost everywhere and probably here as well. No, if you fear violence, the reaction is to take steps to prevent it from happening, not to shut down speech. What would you say to someone who would say, all right, it's just common sense. We've, we just saw what happened in Charlottesville. We know that this is what's going to happen. I'm, I'm being a devil's advocate here. It's just common sense that this is going to happen. Why should we go through the expense and the, the risk, the liability of even entertaining such a rally? So use your common sense and tell people if you want to come to express yourself, baseball bats are not a means of expression. Shields with, with spikes on them are not a means of expression. Automatic weapons are not means of expression. You don't get to bring those with you to an expressive event. Use your common sense and make sure that you keep the protesters and the counter-protesters apart from each other. If you don't have enough people on your local park police to do it, call the city of San Francisco. It's quite a while beforehand. Ask for police backup. If they don't have enough people, Call the governor and ask for police backup or in a pinch, the National Guard. In other words, the government's obligation absolutely is to prevent violence. It's absolutely to prevent people from being injured. But starting by moving against the message instead of taking reasonably sensible, well-calculated steps is the wrong way to do it. And if we give the government the power to do that, it's today's neo-Nazis, it's tomorrow's protesters against a war. And that is why, um, and you can speak to this as the former deputy legal director for the ACLU and the director of its Center for Equality, why the American Civil Liberties Union, which has taken a little heat lately, um, has protected in court the rights of the Klan, uh, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, in their right to free speech, just as it has supported uh, anyone else in their right to, to free speech. You know, there, there are two critical points on, on, on that. One is when, you know, when, when I defend Oliver North from being subjected to double jeopardy, it's not because I approve of giving arms to hostages. When I defend the Church of Santa Mauritius and its ability to meet in a grammar school on Long Island, it's not because I'm a fundamentalist Christian, which I'm not. 
my defense of somebody's right to speak doesn't mean I'm defending their message. It means I'm defending the cherished American right to say your piece and attempt to persuade. And so, and so to me, the, the first point is don't confuse the message with the, with, the, um, uh, with the defense of the right to be able to speak. And so, yes, the ACLU has defended the KKK, and we've also defended Black Lives Matter uh, when people attempted to shut them down. The other point is this, is, you know, rights don't mean anything unless we all have them. A right to freedom of speech that goes with people whose opinions we approve is not a right to freedom of speech at all. A right by definition is something that you are able to do even if the majority disapproves of it. And what's made this country great is that it has managed to square and, and maintain since the Civil War a fundamental right to equality and fairness on the one hand in the Civil War amendments and a fundamental right to freedom of speech as well. And it's critical that we keep all three of those things and not sacrifice one to the others. If you're just joining us, following Charlottesville and in anticipation of rallies by the right here in the Bay Area next weekend, we are talking about the right of free speech and free assembly, what is protected by the First Amendment and what is not. My guest is Matthew Coles, professor of constitutional law at UC Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco. I'm Jane McMillan. I want to read a portion of a statement that came out uh, just a couple of days ago by the ACLU of California. And I think it was in response to uh, some criticism or people trying to understand why the ACLU has supported or gone to court and to protect the rights of free speech, even, even for very unpopular and um, distasteful messages, according to folks who disagree with it. And one of uh, part of this um, statement says, for those who are wondering where we stand, the ACLU of California fully supports the freedom of speech and expression, as well as the freedom to peacefully assemble. We review each request for help on a case-by-case -case basis, but take the clear position that the First Amendment does not protect people who incite or engage in violence. If white supremacists march into our towns armed to the teeth and with the intent to harm people, they are not engaging in activity protected by the United States Constitution with the intent. That's that tricky part that you were talking about, that we can't try to uh, stop something from happening because we're fearful of it, but but that intent part has to be clear and present. Is that Am I reading this correctly? Well, I think for, you know, well, let's step back to two things. You know, if you come into town armed with the intent to do somebody harm, it's true that's not First Amendment activity, right? That's That's just being here. Um, uh, ready to, to make trouble. That's not protected by the First Amendment. It's also, at this point, as far as I know, not a crime. Um, and, and we haven't reached minority report yet. We're not at a state which somebody can be arrested for what we think they intend to do at some point in the future. When somebody engages in violent behavior, absolutely that is a crime, and it's not protected by the First Amendment, and the state absolutely can move against it. And, and as I said, you don't have to wait until somebody becomes violent. Someone who incites violence, the state can move against a speaker who incites violence. And, you know, the classic example, you know, the classic example from the Berkeley free speech movement, take the park, right, when, when going into the park was trespassing mm -hmm. was illegal. So, okay, that's speech that incites imminent lawless activity. You can stop a speaker from doing that. Um, but what you can't do 
is stop because you think what somebody is going to do is likely to result in violent activity. What you have to do first is attempt to pretend to prevent the violent activity. And again, it just, to the critics, I would say, it is far from clear to me that the state, that the state of Virginia took the kind of steps that one would take to prevent violent activity from breaking out. Now, you can say in defense of the state, they had no idea this was going to turn into what it turned into. On the other hand, you can look at that demonstration the night before, which was not a permitted demonstration that took place at the University of Virginia. And I think I would have, be on the, would have been on the phone to the governor's office saying, we need a state militia here. To but not a state militia to arrest the demonstrators or the counter-protesters, a state militia to prevent the violence from happening. And I think as a reasonable permit to condition to tell people they can't bring guns and bats. So this this message from the California ACLU, do you see that as a break from the national uh, based on the conversations that have been going on about hate speech? Or is this just a more tailored message because of the laws of California and the laws of this area that do not permit, obviously, weaponry and such? We're not an open carry state. Right. No, I think that this is this is a classic statement. You know, the the First Amendment protects uh, whatever message you want to convey, no matter how loathsome, repugnant or repulsive we may think the message is. Uh, but at the same time, the First Amendment does not protect or justify um, violence. And, and I think this that that's the line and, and, and that's the line where it's always been. I want to get back to that question of, uh, you know, the weaponry, and you were saying that Virginia is an open carry state, so it would have been more difficult uh, to ahead of time, perhaps, for a local jurisdiction to make that a condition of, of gathering. Um, what, what are the legalities around that in terms of protected assembly under the First Amendment? Um, does the local jurisdiction get the final word? Is it the state law on the books in terms of uh, rules and regulations, especially with weapons? That This is something that varies from state to state. Does a locality have the power to say, um, you can't bring knives, you can't bring bats, you can't bring guns? As far as I know, there's no state law that specifically empowers anyone anywhere to carry around baseball bats uh, or knives. And so I think probably localities everywhere are well within their ambit. You know, unfortunately, we've had a bunch of states pass laws that severely restrict the ability of localities to limit people's ability to carry guns in public places. And indeed, we've had some recent laws that insist that universities must allow people to carry weapons openly. I think my, uh, my friends who are advocates of strong Second Amendment rights ought to think about um, whether those laws make sense or whether you at least ought to give local police the option of banning guns from certain areas at certain times when they perceive uh, a particular danger. It seems to me at a minimum that ought to be a sensible piece. I haven't looked at Virginia's law, so I don't know whether the locality had the power to do that. Um, but it just seems to me to be basic common sense. Is there a higher standard, a higher bar legally for incitement speech if it's a person of authority in a powerful position, an elected official, would speech by, uh, let's say, a tweet by the president that, in fact, came out shortly after the Barcelona incident on Thursday, referring to what's been debunked by historians, but a, uh, a story about General Pershing during the American-Philippine War and how he 
allegedly, which apparently is not true, dealt with so-called Muslim insurrectionists and that he shot 49 of 50 of them with bullets dipped in pig's blood and sent the 50th home to tell the others. And the president tweets out shortly after Barcelona, study the story of General Pershing and about how to deal with Muslim terrorists. Now, can that be considered because of the authority of the position incitement speech? Or do we or would might there have to be something that has to physically happen to someone that could be proven that that was they were incited by that kind of rhetoric or or campaign rhetoric? I'll pay the legal bills if you throw that guy out. I mean, is that incitement speech? And is there a higher bar for a person of authority, elected official, police chief, whatever? Well, without sounding too much like a, a constitutional law professor, um, my initial reaction is that w- what the what the Constitution says is, uh, as interpreted by the courts, says is, you know, in order to move against the speech and not try to prevent the violence, uh, the speech has to incite uh, lawless activity and it has to be in, imminent. It has to be in circumstances in which you really couldn't intervene. Take the parks a kind of a classic okay. example. Um, I think saying at a campaign rally, um, if you went further and, for example, said something like, uh, if you rough that person up, I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll pay the legal bills, that would seem to me to meet both tests, that that would be incitement under circumstances in which imminent violent activity would result, and I think you could prosecute that probably. Um, a tweet... Afterwards, like this, I'm not so sure. Um, uh, it, it might light, rise to the level of incitement. Um, I, I don't know that it would be under circumstances in which it would be impossible to step in and say, no, no, wait a minute. This is crazy. We're a society that's committed to a rule of law. You don't line people up and shoot them. Um, we, have, we have a system where we deal with people who we think are lawbreakers, but we don't line people up because of who they are and shoot them. There are other societies, we could name them, that have done that, that still do that. We stand against it. So it's, it's the imminent it's threat both. of, okay. It's both. I have, to, I have to be inciting lawless activity, and it has to be in circumstances in which it's imminent. But, but this comes back to the basic proposition, which is the government's first reaction should be to prevent the violence. If someone tries to incite it in circumstances where it's not possible to intervene, then you can shut the speaker down. Is there ever an instance under the Constitution in which a symbol, uh, a sign with verbiage that may be threatening um, a statue? So, I mean, that could be considered a marker of uh, not just hate speech, because, as you said, that's protected, but um, something that could be not protected under the First Amendment. Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, burning the cross on somebody's front lawn is a classic example of that. It's not, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a symbol resonant and powerful with messages directed at a particular person. That's a threat. I think if you put a sign up that said, you know, uh, we're going to take the people in this apartment out uh, tomorrow night, so come join us there, whatever, fill in the blank. Um, yes, I think that's a, that's a threat. Um, and threats are outside the ambit of the First Amendment. And so I think you absolutely can do that. As we wind down the time, unfortunately, and we're wondering about these uh, rallies possibly next weekend here in the Bay Area, what is your what, what are your rules of thumb for citizens who want to go out and 
exercise their right of free speech and assembly and maybe in support uh, joining in with these rallies. But for those, I think I, I think those folks might know what their options are already because this is an or these are organized events. But what about the people who want to go out and stand against it? What should they what can they do and what should they not do? What what will be protected and what will not be their behavior? Well, Two things. I mean, one, if it were me, I'd watch very, I'd watch closely to see uh, what the Park Service does. If the Park Service puts um, really reasonable restrictions on on the protesters, um, you know, no arms, no bats. Um, if the Park Service sets things up so it, it it so that they separate the protesters and the counter protesters enough so that an interaction. I think I'd feel fairly comfortable going, and I'd go knowing that, A, civil disobedience is not protected by the First Amendment, and violence sure isn't protected by the First Amendment. Um, but I'd recognize also that, that, um, that you know, it, it, it's, these are fraught events, so I'd be very careful about going, and I'd want to get a sense that the National Park Service was ready to do what needed to be done. If I thought the National Park Service, if I was worried about whether the Park Service was ready to do that, I would organize a serious rally um, in, in, in competition, maybe even at a different time. But I would march on another important symbolic place in San Francisco and to express our contempt for white supremacy, our repugnance at, at Nazis and neo-Nazis and, 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 and so on down the line and put the message out. I mean... There are very few places in the country that have as rich a tradition of robust free speech as San Francisco um, and as rich a tradition of, of expressing rejection of those notions. I'd like to see San Francisco, rather than get in some kind of a brawl with a bunch of, as Steve Bannon puts it, clowns, um, rather than get into a brawl with a bunch of crowns, clowns, show where our hearts really are in a mass way. Give us some examples. You know, you know the history so well. You you have worked on so many uh, huge cases and historic changes in protection under the law. What other times in history have we seen something like this? You are a historian as well as a constitutional law professor. So, in recent memory, what would you liken this to? Well, you know, uh, it's not all that long ago. It's 1977 that the not the Nazi Party went wanted to go marching through Skokie, Illinois, which was a city with a lot of elderly people who had lived through the Holocaust, been victims of the Holocaust, um, and and the fear was that that was going to blow up horribly, and it didn't blow up horribly. The march happened, and it and it didn't blow up. Uh, what I'd like to, what I would really like to see is. Um, uh, uh, you know, something closer to what we saw uh, during the Vietnam War, um, during the LGBT movement, um, which are strong marches, uh, strong marches that express, you know, for years afterwards, we marched from Castro Street down to City Hall in commemoration of the night uh, that, that Harvey Milk and George Moscone were murdered. And they were powerful uh, demonstrations that resonated around the world. Many of the demonstrations from around the world after 9-11 expressing solidarity with the American people, those were important things. If we think these people 
by these people, I mean the neo-Nazis and the Nazi sympathizers, are threatening the American way of life, we need to turn out in public and say that. Matthew Coles, thank you for your expertise and your insight. We appreciate it. Pleasure being here. Thank you, Jane. Matthew Coles is a professor of constitutional law at UC Hastings College of the Law. He is also the former deputy legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union and director of ACLU's Center for Equality, which focuses on voting, racial justice, immigration, and disability rights. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 